Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review Sebastian Vettel's great Bahrain Grand Prix win, but ask if Valtteri Bottas should have beaten him. Welcome to Autosport's secret studio location in Bahrain. We're going to look back on a a fantastic Bahrain Grand Prix and a great victory by Sebastian Vettel. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and I've only got one guest joining me for this podcast today because everybody else has already moved on to China or or headed back to Europe. Scott Mitchell. Scott, this is your first visit to Bahrain, I think. What did you make of the circuit and and the whole event? I like Bahrain so much we're still here, which is a good... Long after everyone else has left. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's Tuesday afternoon now, it's... We're going to be flying out to China a little bit later via Abu Dhabi. Uh, Bahrain's been 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 very pleasant. It's uh, I'd say it's the first time I've been here. It, it, it's odd being around like you're not actually in downtown Bahrain during the day. So when when we we headed out last night, didn't we? And and actually like it just looks like a totally different place at night. It looks so much more visually impressive. Less um, density. Yeah, exactly. Very much less density. Um, but other than the place itself, the first time I've been to the circuit, um, and actually put on a really, really good show for us, didn't it? After all of that criti- criticism levied at Formula One and overtaking in Australia, who would have thought that when we went away from a special, tight, bumpy street circuit to a permanent, wide, fast venue with a big stopping point, we'd actually have good racing? Well, very much so. And... The great thing was that although it was a, a lights-to-flag victory, say, for in the pit-stop sequence with Sebastian Vettel up front from pole throughout, it was a really, really tense one that went right down to the wire. There was the possibility of a last-lap attack from Valtteri Bottas, who was closing in rapidly on Sebastian Vettel. For me, this was, this was one of Vettel's better wins in Formula 1. To bolt on those soft tyres, planning to do a two-stopper, remember, at that stage... He came on lap 18 of 57, fully expecting to to stop again, to be able to extend that stint because they realised that was the only way they'd have a shot of finishing ahead of Mercedes. It was really impressive to manage that race to perfection, I thought was massively impressive. It's not flashy from the outside, but I tell you what, not many drivers would have been able to pull that off. Well, when you consider that Marcus Ericsson went into that race planning to do a one-stop strategy, he pushed it to lap 23 and then fit the medium tyres 
and he had still had to manage his race, uh, manage the rest of his race. That just goes to show just how unexpected it was that Vettel was able to to put that performance in, make that last to the end. And he said, I thought it was really, really interesting. After the race, he said um, about 10 laps to go, he radioed to his team to say he had everything under control in the hope that they were going to broadcast it uh, in the race coverage. Because as he said after the race, he had nothing under control. The tyres were done. He was really struggling. But he was hoping that Mercedes would hear that message, think that everything was cool and not let Bottas smell blood. Yeah, there's always that game with the radio, isn't there? I wonder how many messages we're meant to hear that, that never go out because they think they'll be significant. But it was interesting because if you look at the way the strategy panned out, Vettel was in on a two-stop. Raikkonen was always planned to be a two-stop. Bottas started the race. Plan A was a two-stop. Lewis Hamilton, with his five-place grid penalty as a result of the bearing damage and the hydraulic leak that he sustained in Australia, starting down in ninth, was always planning to do a one-stop race. But the really interesting thing was that Mercedes were looking at potentially trying to undercut Vettel by stopping before him to gain Bottas' trap position. So he shaved about a second off a gap that was just over three seconds prior to supposedly coming into the pits. But of course, he was called in. Mercedes crew went out, Ferrari responded and brought Vettel in. So they cancelled Bottas' pit stop. At that point, he said they were intending to put softs on to keep him on the two-stopper. But they left him out for another couple of laps and then brought him in and put him onto the mediums to change to the to the uh, the one-stopper, which was kind of the checkmate move that Sebastian Vettel responded to. So it's really fascinating how this race played out as a movable feast of, of strategy. And it's not often we get these ones where it's sort of on the cusp between one and two-stop. The two-stopper in pure pace terms, was the quickest way to the end of the race. But obviously, the one-stopper gives you a track position advantage. Well, I think it was a genuine, genuinely fascinating Grand Prix. And it is a good example of when there was all this criticism after Australia that there, there's not enough overtaking in F1, blah, blah, blah. You can still have really good races where there isn't that proper position changing, people diving down the inside. Like, the the fact that we don't have any of these like famous Dijon battles anymore where you have drivers banging into each other. and Which, which of course, happened every single race in the 1970s. Oh, the 70s and 80s were the best era of, of Formula 1 where they had 17 cars fighting for the win and they were constantly three or four abreast. But unfortunately, those days are dead. A brilliant era, but it was never quite like that. Exactly. Well, very rarely anyway. Here, here was fascinating. and The fact that you had... that the What made Vessels win so good was that the strategic differences between the, the two teams and the fact that Vettel had to adapt his plan to try and go to the end it made him vulnerable at the end and 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 that's such a key variable because you don't get that if you have that natural ebb and flow of some people being quicker in parts of the race and some people being quicker than others because it doesn't how many times have we seen those gaps sort of slowly diminish and you think oh well if he keeps it up at this rate and he'll turn this 18 second deficit and he'll be with him on the final lap and it never quite goes that way because the amount they're catching up slowly trails off as they use their tyres and, uh, and that sort of thing. But here, because you had that strategic offset, it it was a genuine grandstand finish. And it's a shame that Bottas didn't get quite close enough to launch a proper attack. He had that half-hearted look, didn't he, where he didn't really make anything of it. So Vettel kind of, because he didn't have to defend on track, it kind of looked like he'd, he'd judged it to perfection and, and it, it was a rel- relatively easy run to the finish. But he was properly on the limit. And that unknown... That having no idea how that battle was going to go in the final phase is what made it so good. And you've also got to remember how easy it is to make a little mistake in those situations. Even after Bottas had pulled out of attempting any kind of move at turn one on the last lap, there was still the DRS zone on the back straight on the run into turn 11. And there you've got turns nine and ten. Nine's a, a kind of kink on the approach. So you're braking with one side of the car unloaded. You see lots of lockups there. And when you're struggling on on tyres and you know you've got to get a good exit you've got to carry as much speed as you can you've got to really maximise the traction on the exit it's so easy to make a little bit of a mistake have a bit of a lock up go a tiny bit wide have a bit of wheel spin that costs you in the DRS zone it doesn't look again flashy but that's what Bottas will have been sitting there hoping to see but Vettel did not put a foot wrong and I think this was a consequence of what Vettel was talking about about Ferrari's car being better suited to Bahrain and also them unlocking a little bit more performance on the front end so Vettel said he felt healthier in the car over the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend his teammate Kimi Raikkonen was ultra quick from the beginning um, they they looked really good and they they had a genuine pace advantage over over Mercedes it looked like Mercedes sort of dropped away from their level in Australia rather than Ferrari making up that gap and then some but Ferrari did make a genuine breakthrough that the, they've improved the setup they've dialed in the front of the car a little bit more that combined with the fact that the circuit characteristics at Bahrain 
helped like suited their car a bit better so Vettel was just so much more in control of the car here and I think we've seen this so many times from him when he he, when he is at one with the car when he's leading from the front when he doesn't have the distraction of cars around him in front of him sort of testing other parts of his game maybe a little bit too much he is exemplary leading from the front and he was he had to be that was that was less stunning visually than some of the wins we've seen him pull off in the past but it was definitely up there with one of the best because of how he had to execute a really unlikely strategy and with you know withstand serious pressure at the end of the race from Bottas the relative pace of Ferrari and Mercedes did swing a bit during the weekend in qualifying Ferrari did have have the edge but in the race particularly once you're onto the the harder tire compounds Mercedes did seem to have the pace advantage but they couldn't get the the trap position this car like last year's particularly this time last season does have trouble with managing the temperature of the of the rears in particular when it comes to qualifying last year they really struggled with the ultra soft this year the super soft seems to have been kind of dragged into that range which makes sense because the compounds are all a step softer so the super soft this year is kind of equivalent to where the ultra was last year whereas when you see them on the soft tire and the medium tire relative to ferrari they they were much much stronger so this is quite positive because i think everyone still sees the mercedes justifiably as fundamentally the the quicker car as it was over the course of last season but there's enough question marks over it now to say, actually, there could be races where they might struggle a little bit in qualifying, not have the track position and have to try and gain it back to really, really make things interesting. It's, it's a it's a really fascinating mix. Do you remember last year, the, the races where Mercedes struggled the most were the races that Bottas seemed to get more out of the car than Hamilton. And here, obviously, Hamilton had the grid penalty, so he wasn't the factor he wanted to be in the win. But Bottas was. Bottas was... He had the pace. He had the edge on Hamilton on pace in qualifying. He outqualified him on merit. And it, and it should be stressed that Mercedes emphasised that they made no compromise on the qualifying trim of the car with a view to the race. So that was a that was a fair comparison. A genuine victory for Bottas in qualifying. Um, he was he was the quicker of the two Mercedes drivers. But the, the problem I have, and I think this moves us on to what we wanted to discuss about whether or not Bottas should have won that race, taking it from Vettel in those closing stages. Whenever Whenever Bottas does well, his wins last year, with the exception of Abu Dhabi, when Hamilton had already wrapped up the title a couple of races before, so you could question whether or not he was fully on top of his game. When Bottas does well, there's always a question mark. It's always, oh, well, Hamilton wasn't really at the race this weekend, so he's not beating him in a straight fight. Oh, well, Hamilton's won the title, so, you know, Hamilton's motivation isn't quite up there with Bottas's, so was it that impressive? And the two races that the two, the first two Grand Prix wins that Bottas scored, he he scored with Vettel catching him massively towards the end. And here the positions were were flipped, and like last year, the hunter didn't win out. The guy protecting the lead ended up winning. But there was still that question mark over whether or not Mercedes would have won if it was Hamilton in that situation rather than Bottas. And well, I don't know. What do you think of that? Is that harsh on Bottas, or do you think there's a grain of truth in the fact that Bottas probably could have forced the issue a bit more? There's a few different ways of doing it. Personally, I would have liked to see Bottas try to force the issue. I did ask him this after the race. He was quite a long way back in that turn one move, and it would have been massively risky to send it up the inside, and Vettel was trying to cover it. But there's part of me that thinks, actually, there is a point where you do have to try and force the issue. And the best drivers, the best overtakers, Lewis Hamilton, Daniel Ricciardo, <laughs> Max Verstappen's a slightly dangerous example, perhaps, given uh, given what happened with him earlier in the race. But I kind of felt like it was quite an important moment for Bottas. There have been question marks about his wheel-to-wheel stuff for quite a long time, going back to his Williams days. Remember, there was all sorts of stuff about whether he was as forceful and incisive as he should or a bit too soft, particularly in first corners and that kind of thing. And I think this is an area that we really need to see from him if we're to be convinced that he can kind of join the elite drivers regularly and, crucially, earn another Mercedes contract for next year. He's a really classy driver. He's a quick driver. He's an intelligent driver. But I think in those moments, he doesn't necessarily quite have it. So to answer your question, would Hamilton have passed him in that scenario? It would have been difficult, but he'd have had a bigger chance of doing it. And I think Daniel Ricciardo and Verstappen would as well. The one thing I would say is it's easy to say, well, someone else in that car would have won. But also, Mercedes did play a hand in this. If you look at the the pattern of the race, once Bottas had stopped, he started closing on Vettel for a period. He was taking four tenths of a second, and he got uh, 4.2 seconds behind. 
And then there was that kind of point where Mercedes was so confident Ferrari was going to stop again that they said, "Oh, okay, we can, we can dial back." And then he's and then he's dropped back down to to eight point two seconds. And suddenly it's, "Oh, actually, they might be trying this," you know. And then it's suddenly, "Right, on you go, push on." And and that I think is is the is a big big concern for Mercedes. And so they, they try and manage the races to perfection, but there's always this this kind of little question mark factor, this uncertain area where you have to be aware, because who knows what would have happened. If if Bottas had continued to close, would Vettel have had to push more? Would they have thought, you know, there's no way we're going to make this work, we're going to have to pit at the optimal time to make the two-stopper work? Would it would it have changed things? Would it have got Bottas to him closer at the end of the race? Yeah, they were managing tyres as well, and they were managing all sorts of things, but I just feel that Mercedes talks about this 90% Sort of possibility of winning the race at that point. I just think they relied on it too much. Ferrari threw it out there, said, "Right, do you know what? We are going to gamble here. We're going to leave him out there." And that was a that was a high risk one. Mercedes, particularly once Raikkonen was out of the race, didn't have anything to lose because even if Bottas's tyres had fallen off a cliff or Hamilton's tyres had, they'd have exchanged second and third place for second and third place because Pierre Gasly was way too far back to to jump them. I I don't think Mercedes thought they didn't have to earn the race, but they definitely acted a bit too much like the race was just going to come to them didn't they exactly and and that and that's the problem the other thing is that Vettel said that his tires only really started to go within those final 10 laps and the five and the last five laps in particular and that's when we saw Bottas really start to make inroads so Vettel reckoned that Ferrari realized that they could add a genuine chance of getting to the end with about 20 laps to go so at that so let's say it is 20 laps to go and in the tw- final 20 laps Vettel switches to a proper need to get this to the end mode. Could you not argue as well that Mercedes or Bottas should have been closing in at a, a better rate before the that sudden improvement in the final five laps where I think he was taking almost a second out of him? And I think the key point when they actually realised and the penny dropped that Ferrari was trying to go for this was lap 44 when Bottas's pace suddenly increased into the one minute 34 second bracket and he started closing back up on Vettel again. There was this period, there was about, there was about eight... The think, uncertainty where that, they're not quite sure whether exactly, they're just... Yeah. Well, they might have been setting themselves up to for for that second stop to just be as short as possible. So he's got so there's absolute certainty that if Vettel stops again, he can rag the tyres as hard as possible to catch him back up and reclaim track position. But even so, I, I, yeah, they should have forced the issue more. I think we're both in agreement that that they left a bit too much on the table, both driver and team. Particularly once you've got two cars up there they were two cars against one once Raikkonen was out as well well this is what Ferrari played to perfection in Australia wasn't it the the reason that Vettel was able to have that fortunate win in Australia when the safety car period let him stop while everyone else was circulating slowly was because they had two cars in the game against Mercedes one so they played that to perfection here Mercedes didn't they had two cars to Ferrari's one they 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 had no other distractions it's not quite the same circumstance, but it is another example of Ferrari getting their tactics spot on, riding their luck a little bit, but getting that tactic spot on and executing it to perfection as well. And Mercedes just not quite being being at the races. That 90% probability is probably also, that figure is probably applicable to how much Mercedes is performing to its maximum at the moment, leaving a bit on the table. Well, I think certainly having having things so much more close than it has been at times during this this era of Formula One has maybe exposed them a little bit more. And actually, all credit to Ferrari. You know, I've been critical of them in the past. You know, a couple of years ago, there were all sorts of weird strategic decisions going on that, that you couldn't really explain. But now, in terms of strategy, the way they're executing the races, you've got to say, do you know what, Ferrari, you're, you're really, really on it at the moment, which is good because we need them to be to have as, as good a championship uh, championship fight as possible. Well, we wouldn't have said this before Australia, would we, that Ferrari would have won the first two races of the season. Okay, one of them was a bit lucky. There was nothing lucky about this win. Well, you can make a very strong case. Certainly Australia didn't have the quickest car. And although in qualifying trim they did here, I think in race trim they didn't again. So all credit to Ferrari. That's really, really good to be able to, to, be able to do that. Especially to bank these points now when Red Bull is throwing points away for fun. Not much fun for them, but they are throwing points away. Um, when they come back into the picture, it's going to be very interesting to see once they actually execute a weekend flawlessly, whether Red Bull are at the back of that free car fight, whether they get in between Mercedes and Ferrari, or whether they vault to the front, because we we seem to think that they might have the fastest race car, don't we? Well, I think if you look at Red Bull in Bahrain, I think potentially that was the fastest car. We saw a lap and a bit of Daniel Ricciardo. We saw Verstappen make a bit of progress before his collision with Hamilton. On, it was a total on implosion, wasn't it? Exactly. Like, yeah. Of uh, the likes of which you very rarely see in F1. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the Ricciardo's was just a total car shutdown, sudden shutdown related to the energy store. 
that's a similar problem to one they had in uh, in preseason testing, whereas Verstappen had the had the damage. Well, let's quickly talk about Verstappen and Hamilton. Hamilton never quite got into that lead battle, though he was within seven seconds come the finish. He was he was kind of a threat, and it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had he been the sole driver to stay on one stop strategy and Bottas and Vettel uh, stayed on the two. But look at that that incident on lap two with Verstappen trying to pass Hamilton. What do you make of that? Well, my gut feeling at the time was that Verstappen had been really stupid. Uh, that he's got that he'd got the move done, and it was a very very good move because Hamilton is a very difficult person to to be better than on the brakes, and he did really well to avoid clattering into the back of Alonso's McLaren, which was sort of parked on the apex as Verstappen was trying to get the move done. But I felt that he just didn't need to let the car run as wide as he did. He didn't need to be as aggressive in forcing Hamilton to the curb as he was. And so the contact was avoidable. Hamilton said after the race he'd already conceded the play, so Verstappen didn't need to do that. I've looked at the replays since. We spent ages, didn't we, playing it, pausing it, playing it, pausing it, trying to go through it frame by frame. And I'm a little bit less convinced now that Verstappen was just totally careless. Um, He does have to avoid Alonso on the apex. He is carrying a lot of speed in. But I just think there's a little moment where... He faffs around with the steering a bit too much or a bit more than he probably needs to. Let's the car run to the edge more than he needs to. And I still think that contact was avoidable and more avoidable on Verstappen's part than Hamilton's part. Yeah, 100%. I don't really have a problem with anything Hamilton did in that in that move. Verstappen was perfectly entitled to make the move. I think he didn't factor in Alonso as much as he should have done and he was reacting to Alonso. And there was that kind of moment where he, you know, he's already going to go a little bit wide from the apex which is fine there's plenty of room for Hamilton still to get around but then he kind of goes wider and then there's a bit of indecision I think it was just it was just the reaction of a driver who wasn't kind of in 100% control of everything that was going on in front of him it doesn't mean he was it was a wild bit of absolute insanity or madness it wasn't incredibly sensationally stupid and aggressive or anything but I think it just reflected a mindset that wasn't quite as calculating particularly early in a race as it as it should have been, and that's ultimately what you need from a world champion to more often than not get those tiny little decisions right. Well, Hamilton said that the reason he'd conceded the corner was because he's already driving with the world championship in mind. He knows that this year he's fighting for the title. Verstappen's supposed to be fighting for the title as well. I know that they didn't have a great Australian Grand Prix, but that is the intention. And Verstappen is a very impatient person. We've seen that throughout his short career already. So. He needs to be driving smarter. You don't want to temper that natural aggression and ability because that's what makes him such an exciting talent. But as Hamilton puts it, it's immaturity. If Alonso or Hamilton was in that Red Bull, do you really think that accident would have happened or do you think he would have banked a really good result and been in that podium fight? Yeah, I think you have to say the latter. In fact, though, Hamilton's race, the start of it was a little bit subdued. I gave him 8 out of 10 in our driver ratings, partly because he was outqualified by Bottas, but also because of this early phase of the race. He made this great start, sliced between Noko Hulkenberg and Esteban Ocon, just off the line on the launch, straight between the front, uh, the row in front of him. But then went to the inside, got a little bit boxed in behind Magnussen and lost a couple of those places again. And then he got mugged by Alonso into turn eight later that lap. And it, it was just a, it was a little bit subdued. I know he was trying to play the long game and, and be careful and he knew he had to make the tyres last, etc. And also the soft tyre versus a preponderance of people who are on the, the super soft means you've got a bit of a disadvantage at the start. But it was, it was interesting. And he, he said himself that... If there was a chance of the race win, I lost it in the first laps, which is interesting because he did kind of get into the periphery of the lead fight, but he's never never quite into it. Well, this is where that sort of attitude we were just talking about, about driving with that championship in mind, it, it, it can have its negatives. And in those moments where you just need to sort of be a bit more forceful, a bit more decisive, sort of make your own luck effectively, um, that it, it can it can bite you, back, bite you in the arse a little bit because you end up in a situation where if you get boxed in in that first phase of the start yeah, then has a it just knocks on doesn't it over the next two or three corners especially Bahrain where you come out of that turn one turn two complex and you have the big run down to to, to three and it's got that slipstream opportunity so you don't really want to lose momentum there but generally speaking I think if you employ that aggressive strategy at the start you've got plenty of times over the course of the year where it's going to cost you more points and it'll gain it'll gain you and I think 
losing those positions at the start obviously wasn't the be all and end all of Hamilton's race. Whereas when you're in that midfield battle, maybe taking a few more risks could have had a much worse consequence. So it's risk versus reward. I agree that he probably could have done a bit more with it, but ultimately to come out of it and still finish third, it's uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good result for him. No, no problem at all. It's a decent weekend's work and uh, an important result. Well, of course, and we never saw what would have happened in the race with the front runners had Raikkonen switched on to the two-stopper, which he did, and actually that played out because of the, the pit lane incident. Raikkonen was released prematurely. Francisco Segarini on the left rear wheel, racing to put the new the new wheel on, was, was taken out and a, a double break to the leg. So what do we know about what happened there? Well, it, was a, it was a sickening image, wasn't it? Um, and I think we're all very, very pleased to hear that he had successful surgery and he's all okay. We understand that he's um, stood again for the first time since it happened so that's all great I think he got a phone call from from Raikkonen as well yesterday just to wish him well so that's really nice but basically um it's just a it appears to be a problem with the the automated system that um that that they employ to to give them the green light literally the green light to to signal that the pit stop's finished and he can go again but it sounds like from what I'm told that it's not a technical problem in the system itself and actually an error with um, the, I guess the, the the sort of human input into that, because basically what what's meant to happen is the the wheels come off, the wheels go back on, and then when the wheel nut is engaged and uh, tightened, it triggers an automated system to say wheels back on, all good, light goes green, car disappears. But they hadn't got the left rear off. And that's why Raikkonen had to stop in the pit lane and eventually retired. It's probably a bit of an overreaction there, but um, basically you're not allowed to go out with a mismatched set. And as you could see, he had three uh, free super soft tyres, but the soft tyre was still on the left rear. Yeah, you, you remember that Valtteri Bottas a few years ago was sent out at Spa with a mixed set of tyres and got a penalty because of it. Yeah, and obviously in that situation, carrying on and getting a penalty... Um, wouldn't have been as bad as retiring, but we don't actually know whether the tyre was correctly fitted on the left rear. So we don't know if it had sort of half come off or if it was still fitted properly. So it might have been a, a, a valid valid retirement. It probably was. Um, but but for su- something has gone wrong in that in that, in that phase with, with the system. At first, it seemed like it was a failure in the automated system itself. But then it was suggested to me yesterday by someone who was sort of trying to find out because Ferrari was investigating what what went wrong that that at some point human input went awry so I don't know if that means that the human failsafe they have on the system in case there's a problem didn't flag that the left rear wasn't on or the right left rear wasn't on if that makes sense um or it was pressing a button in the process don't really know but something went wrong in that phase and that is ultimately what led to Raikkonen being erroneously told by the green light that, that he could go yeah we have all these fail safes remember the 10 years ago at Singapore the whole massive thing with the the uh, being sent out his pit stop under the safety car with the fuel hose still attached was was down to a, a failure of that to do with with when you signal things are done and when things are ready so it, it it can happen but generally these systems are quite well proven these traffic light systems and all the the ways they've developed the the kit to to release the car safely has, has been quite well developed and understood now so it's unusual to see something quite so catastrophic very catastrophic consequences but also don't forget that we saw that with Raikkonen earlier in the weekend he was released on, on on Friday after setting the fastest time with um with one of the wheels not correctly fitted to his wagon and that's why he ended up pulling off just exiting uh, he was on the straight, wasn't it? On the run, uh, on the run down in the in the first sector. So he pulled over pretty quickly there. Um, so two problems in three days for Ferrari fit, fitting a wheel in the pit stop. So you do wonder, and and obviously that comes off the back of Haas not um, not doing their pit stops properly in Australia and, and fitting their wheels incorrectly, which led to the double retirement there. Um, so you know what you, you do wonder. Competition is very good, very important. And the pit stops are incredible, seeing some of the speeds in which they change four tyres and then get on their way. But these automated systems are dangerous when they go wrong. And the sad thing is that in Bahrain, we saw the extent to which the consequences can be bad if they if they do go wrong. Yeah, exactly. I must admit, I was surprised that the penalty for Ferrari wasn't greater, particularly seeing as they'd had the practice problem as well. They upped the the stringency of the of the unsafe release penalties because of the potential consequences of loose wheels or that kind of thing a few years ago. So given the the kind of human costs with Francesco Sigarini breaking his shin bone and fibula, I'd have thought 
that kind of is the definition of one where you uh, where you do want to take quite a dim view. But you know that's that's up to the up to the stewards. I mean, the one positive was I was I was worried when it originally happened that he'd been fully run over on the leg by it, which with the torque being delivered could have been even more horrendous. But it, it was horrible enough as it is, and it's going to be a obviously it's going to be hard work uh, recovering from that. But we uh, we wish him uh, we wish him all the best, and hopefully we'll be back on duty uh, soon enough. Now, it wasn't just the battle up front that was interesting. We saw this sensational fourth place for Pierre Gasly in the Toro Rosso Honda. Don't think anyone saw that one coming. No, and and, and even even within the team, they didn't expect it to be that good. They they were talking positively pre-weekend, saying that, that Bahrain should suit their car better. I think they got the, the setup a little bit wrong in, in Australia, so they were, they were much further off the pace than they expected to be. Um, Honda reacted really well to the reliability problems they had in Melbourne. They didn't bring performance updates here, but they did modify the MGUH and the turbocharger. And they worked really hard uh, on Saturday after practice to establish exactly how they were going to strategically use the um, energy recovery and deployment in Bahrain um, because they knew that that was a, a weak point for them or traditionally has been a weak point for them over the last three years. So if Gasly was to have any chance of building on his amazing fifth place on the grid, he was sixth in qualifying, gained a place after Hamilton's penalty, then they needed to basically get everything right in the race. Honda needed to be reliable, the uh, the, the the package need to, needed to be harnessed properly, the car needed to be spot on, Gasly needed to deliver an absolutely perfect race. And actually, credit to all three parties, you've got an inexperienced driver there, You've got a, a team that is considered the the red, it's the Red Bull Junior team, but it's not a junior in any way in terms of its experience now or how it executes a race. And you've got an engine uh, an engine builder that has had nothing but bad press over the last three years. All three parties got it absolutely spot on, and I think it was a proper feel good result, wasn't it? Oh, massively so, massively so. And also, it's a close midfield battle, but they were. 13 seconds clear of Kevin Magnussen in the, in the house and that does speak very well for everyone involved particularly Pierre Gasly this is only his seventh Grand Prix he's had nothing but trouble in the outings he's had previously so we've not really seen him have a having a smooth weekend so this is the first time he's been tested I always cite one of the most impressive things I saw Daniel Ricciardo do was in 2012 in Toro Rosso he qualified six for Bahrain with a, a lap that was sensational parts of it were, were were quicker than Sebastian Vettel's pole time in, in the Red Bull it was an absolutely sensational lap and you, that's when you sort of thought well I mean this guy's got some incredible pace on him but he had a little bit of an iffy launch he dropped to about ninth or tenth by the first corner and then by the end of the lap he was shuffled all the way back to I think it was 16th behind teammate John Eric Verne and I said it was very impressive and that there were two things. One was that he qualified so well, but the other was that straight after the race, talking to him, he realised what he'd done wrong. He understood the mistake he'd made. He said, well, I did get a bad launch, but then I didn't get it together in the lap. It's just, uh, you know, next time I'm up there, I'm going to do it. And the next time he was, which wasn't until China the following year, he kept it all together. No such problem for Gasly, who qualified well, did well. And if you look at it, he was under attack from Kevin Magnussen a few times after the safety car restart. He had to tough it out with him and then uh, again later on and keeping that trap position was absolutely critical because it allowed the car pace to be used it allowed Toro Rosso to manage the race as they wanted to and show the best of the car and that resulted in them finishing what it was about 56 seconds behind the lead at the front of the midfield which effectively a class win and it wasn't just keeping track position, it was reclaiming track position. Gasly was was super incisive when he needed to be because he was under a lot of pressure from Magnussen um, and Magnussen looked quicker dive down the inside of him at, at, at turn one but but Gasly cut back and shot in front of him again instantly and then from there just built that advantage reacted to that pressure reacted to that situation and obviously managed the car and the tyres well enough while he was ahead and it it was perfect it it was a it was a drive where you look and you go okay I can't see anything you've done wrong there and as you say for a driver so early in his F1 career that's a huge boost especially when you consider that he's got a teammate alongside him who yeah he might not Brendan Hartley's come into F1 in that weird scenario, especially for Red Bull Junior, as not a junior single-seater prodigy. But he's got a lot more experience than Gasly. And you maybe you'd think that if that package was really good, it would be that guy, the guy with a lot more experience of racing in general that that, that might string it together. Uh, Gasly was comfortably the better of the two Toro Rosso drivers, and his result was 
a brilliant illustration of the difference between a guy piecing it together and a guy who didn't. Exactly, yeah. Hartley wasn't slow. He, he was pretty brisk, but had all sorts of problems. The collision with Perez and then the subsequent time penalty for that and for the formation lap uh, confusion that both he and Perez had. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, says, uh, it says a lot. And actually, we should also say Pierre Gasly did have some floor damage in that race from the from the light contact with Magnussen in the Turn Eleven clash. It only cost him a little bit of downforce, but that was another thing he had to adjust to and adapt to. So it's yeah, although it all ran pretty much smoothly, there was a bit of adversity in there to to deal with. And of course, the great counterpoint was was McLaren. We had Fernando Alonso and Stoffel van Dorn thirteenth and fourteenth. Talk of emergency debriefs on Saturday. This was pretty serious for McLaren. That the the extent of the struggle they had. And at the worst possible race for it to happen as well. <laughs> with the en- with the engine that you spent all this money to get rid of. Doing better. Ahead of you on the grid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it, that was um, that was a, a big wake-up call for, for McLaren. They were really unhappy on, on Saturday. They did a decent job to recover. Alonso had a stunning first lap. I think it was 13th to 9th. And then drove really well um, to finish 7th. And then Van Dorn dropped to the to the back of the grid basically yeah, with a wheels, terrible start. massive wheel spin off yeah um but he fought back through was really really quick got to eighth so that was that, a really good drive from van very Dorn very after good the, indeed after the start double double points finish second one in the row and because of Haas dropping a load of points in australia red bull dropping a load of points here mclaren is somehow third in the constructors championship so the if you just looked at it on paper it actually looks like things are going pretty well for them with with, with renault power they're the best of the renault power teams in the championship Pace-wise, no, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not convinced by them in the slightest at the moment, and they, they're struggling in qualifying. Particularly, it seems to get the most out of the tyres. They're, they're doing well in the race, but they're also benefiting massively from race circumstances, and that is not a very good or encouraging long-term strategy. No, they've admitted it's harder than they expected. You could give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they're within sort of touching distance of the front of the midfield they managed to be the best of the rest on track with a little bit of good fortune in Australia but you know even with this seventh and eighth here there's a lot of work to be done there there's clearly some problem with the aero configuration the car's clearly too draggy let's just have a look at the speed trap figures now the the, the fastest speed trap based on qualifying Fernando Alonso down there in 18th place 314.2 kilometers an hour Stoffel van Dorn 20th place 310.7 kilometers an hour between them is Max Verstappen, who didn't do a proper run. So you are looking at the McLaren Renaults being four kilometres an hour slower in the main speed trap than anybody else, regardless of engine. And what about the Hondas? Uh, the Hondas? Well, there's Pierre Gasly, 10th place, 322.5 kilometres an hour. So that's about, uh, yeah, you're talking about eight kilometres an hour. That's really now, not bad for a GP2 engine, is it? <laughs> exactly. Speed trap figures don't tell you everything. And you have to bear in mind that it's your speed at every point along the straight that makes a difference. You know, if you have a really strong run up to your VMAX and then just sit at it and others get a bit quicker, you can still cover the straight more quickly and be competitive. The classic example is there's a great speed track configuration at Spa where there's one at the top of Radion. So you go up by Rouge out of the Radion and then you're going to head up the Camel Straight. There's one there and then there's one before the braking zone for Lecom. And remember, there's been a couple of years back in Red Bull's glory days when Vettel would be quickest at the first of those speed traps and basically slowest by the second of those, but he's still getting lap time because he's carrying the speed, etc. So it's a bit one-dimensional, but it, but it says a lot. McLaren have got to do a lot of soul-searching about the technical team. I asked Eric Bouillet if he's still confident in the technical team. He said yes, 100%, but I think we saw a few signs that they need to have a very, very close look at the assumptions they're making, the drag levels they're accepting. Are they just chasing peak downforce and, and forgetting about this? And, and what we've seen from Toro Rosso suggests that while it would be wrong to rewrite history and say, oh, it's all McLaren's fault, Honda were brilliant all along, because that's not true, it does say that clearly there are things that need to be sorted at McLaren and quickly, because let alone getting up there with Red Bull that they all keep talking about, they've got to get to the front of the midfield properly first. Alonso says they've got a different car in the factory as they do at the racetrack. That's absolutely no good. What year was it when McLaren had that famous B car that they were working on? Or the, they, they... Well, you had the MP418 That's of it, 2003 yeah. that was always going to replace the, M, uh, the MP417D, but of course it had all sorts of problems and crashes and uh, overheating. Exactly. And all sorts of... A theoretical but... car is absolutely no good in Formula 1. Exactly. Although the funny thing about that is the people who worked at McLaren at that time always say that the 2003 race season was one of the best ones because they were just left to get on with maximising the 17D that they had while everyone else was distracted by faffing about with the, with the never raced 18. But uh, I've digressed there. But yeah, if we want to take the positive spin on it, McLaren have got new parts coming. They have delayed a few bits. They're talking now about Spain for a new upgrade. 
that's the positive spin. But I'm afraid, given where they set the objectives, the start of the season has found McLaren out. They need to do some very, very, very serious looking and understanding and change the assumptions they're working on in order to deliver the level of performance they keep telling us they're capable of. Because if Red Bull's their benchmark, they're miles off. They keep saying that they kept saying over the Bahrain weekend that you know they struggled there last year as well. So it's a circuit that doesn't match the, char- the characteristics of their car, and they need to understand why that is. And they need, also they undercooked the setup, and they had other problems, and they they sort of got on top of that for Sunday. But that's sort of half explains Saturday's struggles. That's all well and good, but I, I asked Alonso on on Saturday after qualifying, right? How long until you start demanding answers? Because it's all well and good saying that it's circuit specific. What about this weekend when we go to China? What if they're not at the top of the midfield and closing on Red Bull there or or in Baku? How long until you start demanding answers? And he just sidestepped it expertly with, oh, well, we're always demanding answers and new parts from the moment we get the the new car or we see it in January or February and and, and this and that. It's a nice bit of sidestepping. It's a nice bit of media gamesmanship. I completely disagree. If if those parts that they keep saying are coming, because let's not forget that their reliability problems in pre-season has shunted their development schedule back. If those new parts don't deliver, sooner rather than later, Alonso and several other people within McLaren are going to be asking serious questions if they're not already. And Fernando Alonso is going to be a very, very good barometer of what's going on inside McLaren because there will be a point, if things don't improve, where his messaging changes very, very noticeably, as we all know. And that media gamesmanship will be absolutely lovely for us. Exactly. We shall enjoy it. And uh, autosport.com will be all over it. You can guarantee that. Just as one little side note to that, there was a, there was an amusing bit after the race. I went straight down to Toro Rosso because I wanted to have a chat to technical director James Key, given the level of the performance I was hanging around. And they had one of them, one of the, the team guys, just saying to, to one of his colleagues, "Oh, it was a shame we couldn't have passed Alonso on track because he pitted." Because there was a point in the sequence where it, you know, it was never a race for position, but in real terms, but there had just been that amusing thing. And I do wonder whether McLaren, in fact, I think they probably did slightly alter their strategy just a tiny bit in order to avoid that imagine, photograph being taken all of, that of the photos we'd have been using that for months to come a million and one gifts would have been born for use <laughs> on uh, on social media but uh, but anyway but yeah it's um you know we want as many teams as possible to be competitive we want mclaren to be competitive but right you know come on this needs to be sorted out and i think you can't keep pushing forward i'll i'll give them a little bit more leeway through to these Spain upgrades, etc., where they might be able to get on an even keel, but even then, well, yeah, they, they, even are, then. they've got a lot of convincing to do, a lot of convincing that they are actually a, a, a team that can. Uh, yeah, that they're can the do. big disappointment of Formula One at the moment, aren't they? And all the while, we've got this three team fight at, at, at the front. Ferrari's got his act together. Rebels recovering after a di- difficult and disappointing couple of years. It's only McLaren that's really letting the side down at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And there are some good people there. There's decent potential there, but potential has got to be translated into results. Especially when you look around, not only do we see what Toro Rosso were doing, we saw Marcus Ericsson in ninth place, ended a, a 49-race pointless streak with a, with a really good drive, a marathon stint on the, on the mediums, which, which was a, yeah, an impressive performance from him. Yep, Ericsson was, was very good. I, I spoke to him on Saturday and he was talking very positively after another good qualifying performance. He out-qualified Charles Leclerc again. And um, just as we finished the interview, he was been so positive and I, I just joked and just said, so points tomorrow then? And he laughed and went, well, that's always the aim. Sort of brushed it off. I think positivity is one thing, expecting him to go from, where was he, 17th on the grid? Up into the top 10, probably a bit of a step too far. But that points finish was earned totally on merit. Bit of a bold strategy, Great first lap, executed to perfection. Car was genuinely quick in the race as well. So Sauber's made a, a proper step. It's, it's got a lot to be excited about at the moment with the Alfa Romeo deal and, and a proper current spec engine in the car and not a year old one. Um, so so Ericsson did really well and, and, and he deserves that little moment because he's had a, a lot of criticism the last few years, but he's, he's a decent driver. Doubly so, given that the Sauber still seems to be a car that's quite happy to drop kick the driver off the track, uh, get, given half a chance. And, and the point you make about Ericsson, you know, he's got the reputation of pay driver, etc., etc. Marcus Ericsson, he's not a great Grand Prix driver, but he's always throughout his career had a good turn of pace. He's often struggled to string it together. And we've often seen, when he has had a sniff at points in recent times, which has been quite rare, he, he's made errors that have, co- have caused problems. There was a, a pass at turn one in Malaysia that, that cost him a, a point shot, um, for example. But, you know, the, the quality is still very high. He's a GP2 race winner. You know that that doesn't come for, come for nothing, and and the fact that the the standard throughout the whole field is so impressive. You know that the drivers, it's drivers like him who people say, oh, pay drivers. Well, GP two race winner, strong driver, Lance Stroll. Well, 
he's a European F3 champion, you know, Sergei Sorotkin, GP2 World Series race winner. You know, <laughs> these are all serious drivers. Uh, we've got an F1 at the moment. I think it'd be nice if people respected that a little bit. There's no Takianui's, not even close on this grid. Well, this is the problem with sport, isn't it? You're either great or you're rubbish. So uh, it's too easy to dismiss people. And I think the proof is in the fact that Charles Leclerc is a rookie, but he is the Formula 2 champion. He's super highly rated. He's expected to be Ferrari's megastar for, for years to come. Um, and uh, he's he's really struggling against um, Ericsson in the opening two Grand Prix. He will get better with experience, but it's just go, it just shows that that's how difficult Formula 1 is. That's how difficult it is to be at the back end of the grid. And that is just how difficult it is to string ev- everything together. And Ericsson's doing a good job at the moment, and he does deserve credit for that all the while he, he continues to do it. Another driver I've been massively impressed with so far this season is Kevin Magnussen. Two very strong weekends he's strung together, finished finished fifth in the race. He's a driver who has been a little bit frustrating at times because he's got a decent turn of pace. He's a, he's a good racer, but I've not always felt that he's that he's done himself as much justice. And a lot of the teams he's been with, even before F1, have questioned sometimes his approach. But this year, I can say, do you know what, this is, this is really good to see. Very strong performance, isn't it? Even if you go back to the end of last season, his Mexican Grand Prix performance was absolutely outstanding. Australian Grand Prix... Can't fault him. Here, maybe the car had the pace in it just about to... It wouldn't have taken much just to slip ahead of Gasly, but still, all round, good performance. There's been multiple things about the opening two Grand Prix weekends that have been really impressive about Magnussen. The first was in Australia. in, in To do the lap he did in qualifying and, and, and get ahead of Grosjean and, and and put himself in the position to do that really good move around the outside of Verstappen at Turn 1 and run fourth early on. He'd had a really shunted practice program on on friday he'd lost a lot of time he'd only got really like one push run and then saturday fp3 was was wet so he went into qualifying a little bit blind but he absolutely nailed it got himself into that group position did that amazing start and didn't deserve to have the the result robbed from him and then in bahrain when the midfield battle was even tighter and a little bit more random grosjean fell foul of that didn't even make it out of q1 and magnuson smashed it put together the lap okay got done by he got done by Gasly in in Q3, but it was still very good, and he raced really well. So he's it's just two weekends in a row where he's strung everything together. He's probably um, out, outperformed sort of how we would expect him to do. He's probably exceeded his own expectations in a way. He's just he has nailed it. He's been at the top of his game, and I think maybe now you're just starting to see the the, the benefits of that sort of experience of him as a racing driver and a person as he gets a bit older. He's starting to put together the sort of thing we saw in his title winning 3.5 season a few years back. Yeah, it's great to see. And he's, he's an asset to Formula 1 because he's a he's an exciting racer as well. Yeah, and I should also say that Roman Grosjean got eliminated on one of my favourite rules. He did a 1 minute 30.530 in Q1. He was the fastest of those to be eliminated in Q1, which is exactly the same time as Fernando Alonso did in advancing. But if you set your time first, you get the advantage of, of the position in the ranking. So that was an amusing little little side note. Uh, we should just very, very briefly say Williams are all over the place in Bahrain in this tight midfield pack. They were, they were off the back of it, which is pretty, pretty horrible. It's been a, it's been a terrible start to the season for Williams. Yeah, they weren't very happy about it, but um, Sergei Sirikin was uh, was very honest after the race, and he said that he knows that from the outside they look like idiots in Bahrain. They they were nowhere. They were off the back of the grid. He did try and find the positives. Said that he's learned a lot as a driver over the first couple of weekends, and the teams are building up a big bank of data now to. To, to try and work out what's going wrong but as Paddy Lowe said after the race they don't really know at the moment the only thing that they've, they've got is lots of information they now need to comb through it desperately quickly and try and work out what it is because there's lots of nice details on that car but it is not working at the moment yeah they need to make some pretty big steps in terms of understanding I think it's going to be a long haul for Williams this is going to be a, a tough season and immediately you're saying well probably China and Baku it's just going to be kind of do what you can to understand it and then Spain before you've got a chance simple fact is if you start badly it's very very rare that teams magically turn it around these they're days they're a long way from scoring points at the moment they they weren't just at the back of the field in, in, in Bahrain they were adrift at the back and it was so bad and much worse than Melbourne that you you know you do have to hope that it was circuit specific they were, I think they were the only team to be slower this year than last year. That says an awful lot about how much they're struggling at the moment. You have to hope it's a combination of it being track-specific, them getting a few things wrong over the course of the weekend, and then and then them also finding areas that they can improve, and maybe they can make a step forward in the next couple of races. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a big ask. I, I can 
you, you have a feel when there's a, a, a team that's getting itself into a season that's going to be a long, hard slog. And I fear this may be the case for Williams. I hope not. Again, there's good people there, but it's 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 very very worrying for this this brave new brave new era for them under under Paddy Lowe. But you know, good luck to them if they can get back into that midfield fight. It's not too far away. It doesn't take long to vault up to the front of that. So the positive spin is maybe it is possible. But yeah, I remain to be convinced. Well, we're going to have to pack our bags now and head to the airport to, to head off to Shanghai for the Chinese Grand Prix. So thanks very much, Scott Mitchell, for, for your insight. And please check out autosport.com for all the latest news, both from Formula One and the world of motorsport, and our plus subscriber area where you can read all sorts of in-depth insight from the likes of myself and Scott Mitchell and other better appointed writers about goings-on. And also check out Autosport magazine out every Thursday, which will have in-depth coverage of the Bahrain Grand Prix. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo. Written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, gut check. If your six-pack abs are covered with flab, it's time to cut the fat. Lose weight the easy way with Nutrisystem for Men. Now delivering hearty inspirations meals that fill you up without letting you down. We're talking bigger lunches and bigger dinners packed with protein to control hunger for up to five hours. From savory bourbon chicken to mouth-watering meatloaf, they're exactly what a man's body needs to power through the day. You get breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks. All fully prepared. Totally delicious and delivered free to your door. No salads, no juices, just real food for serious appetites. Order today and get all new fuel shakes for men. They're made with the key ingredient Velocitol that doubles the power of protein to help you maintain muscle mass while losing weight and feeling satisfied. Don't wait any longer. Order now for a simple way to lose weight, build strength, boost energy, and burn fat. Go to Nutrisystem.com protein to lock in your special deal. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.